Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, the one-stop shop podcast for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. As we continue with our collaboration with She the People, we are highlighting women from their 20 women of color to watch in 2020 list. These are all barrier-breaking women who are changing the political landscape this year and beyond. Our next guest is someone who I have personally admired from afar and was super pumped to chat with. Mia Ives Rubley is a disabled Korean-American transracial adoptee who refuses to be limited by the boundaries other people set for her. A self-described endorphin junkie, she is an athlete who has competed internationally in wheelchair track, fencing, and adaptive CrossFit. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Mia, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing good, good. Just uh, sheltering in place right now. Yes, we all are. It's so just amazing how different things were two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. How things can really just change with a bat of an eye. But before we start the interview, you and I were chit-chatting. I was saying how I'm just a huge fan of yours, and I've seen everything that you've done, not only for, like, women of color, but the disability community. You have, like, parents who were very active. But what was the moment when you decided that activism was for you? You know, I, I don't I wouldn't say there's a specific moment. I got to see sort of how my parents really advocated for me when I was a child in public schools and you know, unfortunately when I was in public school that was right around when the Americans with Disabilities Act came online um and was signed and schools were sort of scrambling to you know, update things, um, even though the IDEA had been out there, the Rehab Act, um, all of those were out there, but, you know, schools were still sort of scrambling to, to meet the needs, and they're still scrambling to meet the needs of disabled students across the country. And, you know, I, I got to see sort of how my parents spent a lot of time just advocating for my needs, and then eventually... Um, when I was in high school, seeing them advocate for other folks' needs. And I think that helped show me the importance of of finding your voice and being very aware of how systems work and how to use systems to gain access and to gain equality across the board. And so, you know, I really started to use that when I was in college because I suddenly found out that, you know, the IDEA doesn't cover you in college and you become the student without a lot of rights and a lot uh, without a lot mm-hmm. of the accommodations that you sort of presumptively thought that you had when you're in mm. uh, in secondary school. And so, you know, I think that was sort of the time that I was starting to find my voice and went to the University of Illinois and Um, you know, began working on immigration issues around LGBTQ issues around campus rape um, and sexual assault issues and um, specifically around um, a mascot that I believed was racist, um, Chief Illini Wick, um, spent some time uh, advocating um, as a student activist there, um, and we were eventually able to get rid of it. So, you know, I think there were different points in time that I really began finding my voice and, you know, I worked as 
a vocational rehabilitation counselor uh, here in Chapel Hill, Carborough, and got to really know a lot of the details on how systems can function and then not function for for people on the ground. And, you know, got really frustrated there and decided to leave that job because I was getting burnt out and was seeing a lot of my clients coming back, you know, without jobs, without mm. a lot of hope and, and just really struggling day to day to try and find a job and maintain a job. And so, you know, each parts of my life have have really given me a lot of understanding of of systems and um, helped me learn to empathize with a lot of different issues. And, you know, eventually, you know, it, it all seemed to come to a head when this current administration came into power and, you know, gotten sort of dove in, you know, headlong into the Women's March. And by that point, I was like, you know, I've been to protests before. I've been to these events where they don't think of disabled people. They don't think of uh, women of color. They don't think of a lot of things. And that tends to leave us out and leave us vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really decided to, to just like go in, you know, headlong in, in, into activism after that. Oh, I love your story. That's so powerful. And you're in North Carolina. You're coming off of Senator Warren's campaign where you and other yep. women helped drive her disability policy. We had Senator Warren on the podcast, and she was, as always, very open and honest about why she feels that the issues of black, brown, indigenous women should just not be the issues of black, brown, indigenous women. Everyone should care about them. And you have also made sure the disability community was visible and able to participate in such events as the Women's March, which you just mentioned. And you really create spaces for disabled women of color. So what can we as a community and as individuals do better when it comes to supporting the disability community? Yeah, and you know, I would even say specifically the disability community, people of color with disabilities in in particular because I think for for the longest time the disability community has been construed as mostly white um individuals with disabilities. And so, you know, for me what I and the thing that I completely, you know, one of the reasons why I decided to get on the Warren campaign is because of how I saw her work with marginalized communities, not just saying that she's going to take care of them, but partner with them. Um, and that was the biggest key thing for me. I think, you know, her story of like saying that, you know, she really didn't come out here wanting to be politically active. You know, she didn't want to be a politician is what her story is. And she talks about sort of how her life lessons have taught her why it's so important to be politically active and to be active in your community. And I think one of the things that I think communities, especially communities that have power right now, is to really listen to marginalized communities. I think a lot of times communities who have more power, you know, 
tend to coddle or try and protect or try and, you know, solve the problems that marginalized communities face, not realizing how much power a lot of the marginalized communities have if they were just given the resources to be able to um, rise up and to be able to find equality in the communities that they live in. And so the biggest thing that I always recommend is, you know, just sitting and listening and, and being empathetic and being able to take in the stories and the, the strategies of these different communities, specifically the disability community. When I think about, you know, what's going on with the coronavirus and thinking about all these people who are now having to work from home, are now having to find strategies to deal with things that disabled the disabled community has had to deal with all their lives, you know, trying to find accommodations, trying to stay away from people who are, are sick, trying to help uplift each other. These kinds of strategies have been part of the disability community for so long, and especially part of, you know, communities of color as well, is that, you know, like, We've had to already create these sort of networks of community. We've had to deal with issues around, you know, sickness and around not being able to get out of our houses. And so, you know, listening, being empathetic, and then providing a seat at the table are, are all things that, like, I, I strongly recommend. And when I talk to especially activists and, and, and new activists, what I tell them is, like, the first thing that you have to do is listen, you know, to, to the communities that, that are dealing with the issues that you are hoping to work on. And then also just taking your ego out of it and being able to say, look, I don't know everything. You know, I don't have all the the solutions to everything. So let's sit down and talk and have conversations before we we do these, you know, before we make decisions, before we make plans. And my strategy on the Warren campaign has always been, you know, when I was working in North Carolina, was doing roundtables. We did so many roundtables across the community. And time and time again, you know, we talked to places like Fight for 15. We talked to the AAPI community. We talked to the disability community. And time and time again, they were like, we've never seen people come out and just talk to us and just listen to our stories. You know, we're always talked at. You know, and I think that's that's been the problem with a lot of politicians, a lot of, you know, activist group is they come in, they tell you what to do and then they leave, you know, and then you're like, OK, I'm still struggling. I'm still trying to deal with these issues and you haven't helped us any. In fact, you know, now like we feel ignored because, you know, you've left our community. Yes, and totally relate to that. We know there's a lot of politicians. We're not going to stereotype all of them that just love to drop into our communities during GOTV, make sure we get out to vote, right. say all the right things, and then we don't hear from them for like another two to four years. And I don't know if you're seeing this, but I know it's something that I'm seeing is like our communities are just really fed up with that. That just isn't going to work mm -hmm. anymore. And I say, you all have to treat, treat us like the swing voter. Like the time and attention that you give to these other voters, these other communities, we deserve that same time and attention. And speaking again about Senator Warren, we know that she has a lot of plans. She had a really 
great, strong, coherent disability plan for those who are listening, who are candidates, elected officials, or who are working on campaigns, what would you say would be the top three things out of that plan that would be good for them to adopt when they're running their campaigns, but most importantly, when they're in elected office? Sure. I, you know, the, the top three things that I think elected officials should adopt in terms of the, the things that the Warren campaign did was one is create a, a group of individuals who you talk to on a daily basis to get ideas and bounce ideas off of. Um, I think one of the great things about the Warren campaign was not only did she reach out individually to people, but she also brought on a board of individuals who, and they weren't just individuals who were in policy, they were people out in the community. And she brought them together to respond to the sort of policy plans to talk about the issues and to, to, to sort of create this plan. You know, one thing that they did was literally gave us a Google, Google sheet, a blank Google sheet and said, put everything that you want in a plan and we'll review all of these different points and start seeing how they connect with all the other plans that we're working on. And that's sort of how it was. It wasn't, I'm bringing you a plan and you have to say yes or no to, you know, like whether you approve of the plan or not. It was literally, what do you want in a plan? And let's see how it all connects with the various policy plans. And I think the problem has been in the past is that, and I specifically say this about like something like UBI, um, which is the universal basic income. Um, a lot of politicians, unfortunately, they throw out different, um, you know, progressive ideas that that are great in theory, but when you run it in the on the ground, the problem is, and this is what I saw as a vocational rehabilitation counselor, was that when you throw these plans out without understanding how they interact with each other, they tend to come up against each other and they can actually create more harm to an individual or to a community than the, the proposed benefit that they give. So it's something like UBI where you, you assume, you know, give, give people money, right? Um, let them decide how they want to spend it, which is a good idea in theory. But then when you look at how does it stack with SSI, how does it stack with um, SSDI, how does it stack with Medicaid, Medicare, how does it stack with food stamps, how does it stack with, you know, issues around affordable housing, right? If you don't think of these things, then they can all interact inappropriate with one another. You could lose your SSI or SSDI benefits. You could lose your Medicaid or Medicare benefits. You could lose your food stamps just because you are slightly above the line in terms of how much you're allowed to have in your bank or how much you're allowed to earn each year, right, or each month. And so I think that's one of the things that I have really appreciated about the campaign is not only do they ask us sort of like what are the policies, but they look at how they interact with each and every policy to make it as 
intersectional as possible in terms of like making sure that we're looking at racial equality issues, we're looking at gender equality issues. How is it going to affect somebody who needs to get um, reproductive care? You know, looking at the various issues so that they aren't interacting and and making issues worse. So I think that's one thing. Is like one is is creating a group of individuals that are helping provide or helping drive some of the ideas, um, people who are going to be affected by these policies. Two is to make sure that when you're looking at the policies, looking very, looking at the minute details to see how they're interacting with each other. And then I would say three is just, you know, hire us, you know? Um, I think one of the things that I've seen so often is I get, you know, uh, proposals to work on things without getting paid. And I'm sitting there like, why? Like, you know, my expertise, I've been working on this expertise for my whole career. And you're proposing that I do a job that all these other consultants are doing for none of the pay. And it's like, Part of the equality thing is paying us for our knowledge, paying us for the work that we do. Um, so I think, you know, the, those are sort of the three things that I think of when, when, when looking at it. And then we can always go into the, like, the, the minute details of, of the Warren plan, which is, you know, one of the specific things that I think about is how she thinks about immigrants and people of color within her plan. You look at, like, the the healthcare plan that she proposes, and she talks about making sure that health uh, healthcare services that the providers receive cultural competency classes, which is just like you know you would think would be obvious, um, but you look at all the different um, communities of color, whether you look at the black community, you look at the AAPI community, we have the least trust in the healthcare system. You look at it. And the problem has been that either one, we don't go to get healthcare services because we don't trust them. So our healthcare, our trajectory in our healthcare is lower. Um, we have higher morbidity due to that. Think about all the racism that happens in healthcare services, whether it is black women who are not receiving uh, assistance with uh, pain management, or you look at people from the AAPI communities that use herbal remedies that have been proven time and time again to help, but are scoffed at, you know, these kinds of things are, are causing a lot of issues for black, indigenous, people of color communities in receiving, you know, the appropriate health care that they need, which is so important in terms of when we look at coronavirus, right? And how, Right now, you know, the current administration and the GOP are, are calling it, you know, all of these different racist terminologies, whether it's the, the Chinese virus or, or whatever they want to call it. I think one reporter said that they were told is the Kung Fu virus or something like that. And, and so I've seen time and time again that, like, East Asians don't want to go get treatment because they're worried that they're going to get assaulted in the streets or get blamed for for spreading something that has you know like little to do with what race you are you know you know that's one thing that I really appreciate about her plan and the second thing that I really appreciate about her plan 
and she talks about immigrants and how they need to immigrants with disabilities also need to receive the 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 assistance that that all Americans are able to receive whether it's you know whether it's um employment training whether it's healthcare services these are the things that she talks about with around um a new immigrant department that she wanted to build which not only would help you know just um non-disabled immigrants but it would also help disabled immigrants and so you know when we talk about how her plans really look at how it affects other plans and policies you know i really believed in in how she took policies to the next level because she looked at the minute details and how they affected the most marginalized of communities AdBlue is a fundraising platform and nonprofit organization that makes it easy to give and to make your voice heard. They help thousands of democratic campaigns, progressive organizations, and nonprofits build people-powered movements. Small dollar donors are more powerful than any mega donor. Visit secure.adblue.com/about to become a small dollar donor yourself. That's secure.adblue.com/about. For the She the People list, everyone was asked, what book are you reading? And you said, Nicole's, Nicole Chung's All You Can Ever Know. And you said this was the first book where you felt that you were actually seen, that you could see yourself. So tell us a little bit more about that book. Yeah, um, Nicole Chung wrote a book um, based on her experiences as sort of a trans, a transracial adoptee, and the thing is, has been is that I, I think, you know, transracial adoption in in America uh, sort of started around um, the Korean War, and the problem has been that you know, like a lot of the interactions between sort of America and other countries has been sort of you know like take care of the children, adopt them out, you know, and, and bring them into, into communities that might not really understand the cultural competency that you sort of need. The great thing about Nicole Chong's book is her talking about those issues and talking about the strain that, that can happen between an adoptee and between their parents and talking about the, the real issues around mental health and around trying to figure out your place in, in society where society views you as one culture when you grew up in a different culture, um, where you um, almost feel like you have these two conflicting um, identities in, in a way. And I think that's what I really like about her book is she talks about sort of the struggles um, with identity, with, you know, mental health, with just figuring out how to navigate in a society that's so sort of racially based and so sort of pins you into one sort of category, you know just seems like a really great book so for anyone listening who wants a book to read definitely check that one out and continuing with she the people everyone got to have their plus one another woman of color that they wanted to lift up and you lifted up carrie gray so tell us why you chose carrie (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, Carrie Gray. Oh man, when did I meet Carrie? I met her a couple of years back um, when I was doing uh, the Disability Caucus for the Women's March, and you know, I think we basically clicked right away. Like, um, I think you know, she is just somebody that's very just like very open and very like willing to tell you what her opinions are and I love it um she's an individual who has always sort of had my back in terms of um when things got rough you know we we talk from time to time and uh, now that I'm not in DC we don't get to talk as much but you know I think we really clicked um around the issues of being disabled women of color um and feeling like we didn't have as much of a space to really just talk about issues um, that disabled women of color face within activist communities, especially within the disability community and the disability activist community. It's just feeling like we're not being heard when we're talking about issues of racism within the disability community. Um, and so, um, you know, you know, we've been chatting for a while, um, and she and I, um, there was something that came to a head in our community last summer and, you know, uh, around xenophobia and racism. And we were talking and we talked with a bunch of other people and decided to stage a protest at this major convention that would have a bunch of disabled people coming in at one time because of the, the lack of leadership when it comes to talking about racism within the disability community. And so she and I and a bunch of other disabled women of color came together and decided to stage a a big protest and it actually had some ramifications where an individual decided to to step down because of um the issue the the racist and xenophobic things that they said and so you know the fact that she just seems to always have my back the fact that we can just sit and talk and just like hang out um and just like the strength of her voice and like her ideas um, I really think she's a, a person to look out for, a person that has been uh, moving and shaking around uh, not only the disability community, but, you know, the activist community at large. Oh, that's so great. We all need that person that we have in our life. So we want to close out by asking you our signature question. What advice would you give to the brown girls who are listening who are saying, I want to be just like her? Oh, uh, well, all I can say is, for one thing I can say is just like, I, I, I'm honored uh, if somebody says that, um, you know, I think, understand that we're just, we're, we're regular people too. We make mistakes and you're going to be making mistakes as well. And to be honest with yourself, but also be compassionate with yourself as you're, you're moving in these spaces and just be willing to, to listen. And then, you know, when it's time to step in, take a step in and, and really find your voice and really feel like you can take action. Um, you know, I think a lot of us, um, 
while we're doing this work, sometimes it can feel like one, you know, who are we to, to step in and, and take the lead? And two, what if I make a mistake? You know, I think those are, are real things that go on in your head as you're, as you're doing this type of work. And uh, just to know that's normal and not to allow that to bar you from taking a seat at the table and taking up room. Um, because everybody else who currently has power right now, they have those same issues and they're going to take up room. So you might as well take a seat and, and, and speak your truths. And, um, but also know when the time, you know, know when you need to step back and listen. I, I think there's a balance that you need to take, um, and just being willing to, to, to fluctuate between those two things and, and know that it's okay to make a mistake and it's okay that you might feel down on yourself, but, but to like be compassionate as you're doing the work. Such great advice, Mia. Thank you so much for everything that you do and for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. I'm so thankful that you're giving uh, disabled women of color like me and like uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth and all the other disabled women of color that, that you've given space to, to speak. Oh, it's my pleasure. We got to make space for each other. If you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The BG Guide. The BGG Podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, brown girls. Before I go, I want to tell you about a brand new podcast from Wonder Media Network called Beyond Belief. On Beyond Belief, host Jericho Mandibur offers spiritually curious listeners a safe space to question and to consider the ideas, theories, and practices of some of the world's leading non-traditional spiritual thinkers. Jericho takes listeners on a journey to learn how society's weirdos believe and we discover maybe they're not so weird after all. Featuring topics like dolphin communication and stigmata, Beyond Belief gives listeners an opportunity to suspend skepticism and embrace the spiritual. Listen to Beyond Belief on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.